Hello again, and welcome to another episode of State of Reality, your guide to buying and selling real estate in the real world. I'm your host, DJ Stavropoulos, licensed realtor in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode covers the topic of fielding offers on your home. This is where it gets really exciting or very depressing, depending on how things go. Know in advance that there's no crystal ball to show you what's going to happen, so you have to understand the possibilities and how you'll deal with each of them. Again, the more you understand this up front, the better prepared you'll be for what happens and how to respond to it. No one wants the stress of something they hadn't planned for. If you grew up in the 70s watching Monty Hall on Let's Make a Deal, it's similar to that but with a twist. You don't know if Monty's going to make a deal with you, and when you see what's behind door number one, the first offer, you have to make a decision on it without knowing what's behind door number two, or if there even will be a door number two, and the same for door number three. When you sell your home, there may be no doors, or there may be only one door in the first three weeks and another door two weeks later, but you don't know that at the time. Or you may choose door number two, knowing that if it closes on you, door number three is still an option. We call this a backup offer. Or there may be 20 doors and you choose to open them all at once, see what's behind each, and then pick the one that's best for you. That's a multiple offer situation in which you ask for best and highest by a certain date and time. Fun stuff, it can get very complicated. That's when you realize the beauty and simplicity of just one perfect offer. We'll get started after the break. Getting an offer on your home is a wonderfully exciting thing, or so it should be. There are lots of variables in the process, and your listing agent should prepare you for what's coming because no one has a crystal ball. In a nutshell, everyone wants one thing, a full price offer as quickly as possible. That's it. But realistically, this doesn't happen for many sellers. Based on your agent's knowledge of the market and your specific home, they should be able to discuss potential scenarios for what could happen. You should ask about these, talk through them with your agent, and plan in advance how you'll respond to each. Don't naively assume you're going to get a full price offer within a few days. For example, your property goes live and you get one or more offers in the first week. That's pretty simple. You analyze, respond to them, and pick the best one. But what if your home goes live and you get no offers in the first two weeks? What do you do to bring in offers? Do you drop the price? Do you stage it? Do you offer incentives? Or your home goes live and within 24 hours you've got multiple offers. Do you pick the best or decide to open up a bidding war and ask all potential buyers to submit their offers at the same time? This is called asking for best and highest. If you do get multiple offers, are you open to taking a backup offer? That's when you have a second contract waiting in line in case the first one falls apart somewhere along the way. I'll talk about best and highest and backup offers in a few minutes. Know what your lowest possible limit is in order to make the numbers work. Know what a great offer means to you. It's not always the highest price. Maybe the timing of the closing is most important because you need to move and be in your home for a new job by a certain date. Or maybe you absolutely refuse to pay any of the buyer's closing costs, so having that be zero is very important because you want to net the highest amount. A good buyer's agent is going to ask your agent what's important to you so that they can make their offer as appealing as possible. Remember that they're competing with each other to have you accept their offer. Be aware that some buyers will send you a love letter to emotionally connect with you in an attempt to get their offer accepted. Will you accept these or not? These can be risky because the Federal Fair Housing Law prohibits discrimination using seven protected categories. These are race, color, national origin, religion, sex, familial status, and disability. 
So it's possible that the letter could say something that identifies the buyer as a member of one of these. And then if you don't accept their offer, they could try to sue you. It's probably much more complicated than this and difficult to do, but be aware that you may get these with offers. Some buyer agents won't send these along with the offer, or your agent may choose to not forward them to you in order to protect you from potential liability. A simple example is a letter that says, we have three children that we can already see playing in the huge backyard. The buyer isn't supposed to say this because it reveals their familial status, which is the fact that they have children. And if you don't accept their offer, they could try to sue you for discriminating against buyers with children. In the state of Georgia, your listing agent must communicate to other agents if you've accepted an offer. However, if you've received offers but haven't yet made a decision to accept one, they aren't allowed to disclose this information without your permission. They aren't lying to other agents, they're just saying, I don't have the authority for my seller to disclose that information. And they don't have to say anything about it unless they're explicitly asked. This can help or hurt you. Sometimes it's advantageous to let others know you have other offers pending because it creates a sense of urgency with other buyers. It's also your decision as to whether you want your agent to disclose the details of those offers. You can't lie about them, but you can choose what information you want to disclose. Decide up front whether you want your agent to disclose that you have other offers pending and what details they can provide. Finally, come to grips with the fact that your home may not sell for what you want it to, and you might either decide to take much less than you had planned on or take it off the market entirely. You may decide to rent it out until the market improves or scrap the sale entirely. At this point, most people will just push forward because they already have their eye on their next home and getting to it is the ultimate goal. Based on real data, in 2019, approximately 40% of homes put on the market did not sell. That's a stark reality most sellers aren't aware of. To summarize, it's best to talk through all of this so you have a game plan and aren't scrambling to respond because you haven't thought all through this in advance. After the break, I'll cover the purchase and sale agreement in detail. Welcome back. The purchase and sale agreement, also known as an offer, consists of 13 key items, and here they are. First is property identification and the legal description. This states the property address as well as a legal description of the piece of land you're buying. Most people don't realize it because they're focused on the home itself, but when you buy a detached home, you're actually buying a piece of land with a structure on it. If the legal description is wrong, you will end up buying land that the house isn't actually on. This does happen. People legally buy the wrong house, and I don't mean they buy a home that turns out to be a bad fit. They find their dream home, but the contract lists a different piece of land somewhere else. Number two is purchase price of property to be paid by buyer. This is the amount the buyer is willing to pay for your home. Three is closing costs. A buyer will pay somewhere between two to five percent of the purchase price in closing costs. This is where they ask you, the seller, to help cover these costs. This typically happens when the buyer doesn't have excess cash to cover this. Know that what's important in an offer is not the purchase price, but the net price which is the purchase price less the closing costs. For example, an offer of $500,000 with no closing costs is the same as an offer of $510,000 with $10,000 in closing costs. In both scenarios, you get $500,000. The second is favorable to the buyer since they don't have to bring $10,000 to closing. Fourth is closing date and possession. What date does the buyer want to close and when do they want to take possession of the home? These aren't necessarily the same date. 
you should never allow a buyer to occupy the home before closing, but it is permissible to sell your home and stay in it up to 60 days after closing, usually because the home you're moving into isn't quite ready. This is a godsend in that it prevents you from having to move twice, but it only works out if your buyer agrees. I was able to do this when I sold my second home and bought my third. In this situation, there's a separate agreement spelling out the details of how long you'll be staying, how much you'll pay for this, etc. It cannot exceed 60 days since the buyer's lender considers anything longer as mortgage fraud since the buyers have stipulated that they'll be moving into the home as their primary residence. Number five is holder of earnest money, which specifies who will hold the buyer's earnest money. This is usually the broker representing the buyer, not the seller. Six is closing attorney, which is who will handle the closing. In Georgia, the closing attorney doesn't represent the buyer or the seller. They represent the lender. As such, typically the buyer's side will pick the closing attorney. Seven is earnest money. How much, how will it be paid, and when will it be paid? Earnest money is a small portion of the buyer's down payment. Think of it as a good faith gesture that indicates the buyer is serious since they could lose this money. In Atlanta right now, 1% is common. However, that's not a lot of money to take your home off the market. And if the deal falls apart through the fault of the buyer, you as the seller may only get this as compensation for breach of contract. You can no longer sue the buyer, although they can still sue you. Eight is due diligence period and option payment. Due diligence is the period that starts when the contract is binding and gives the buyer the opportunity to inspect the property, negotiate based on what they find, and terminate for any reason. Most sellers want this to be as short as possible. Seven to ten days is common. This can be changed if the buyer runs out of time and both sides agree. Nine is lead-based paint, which specifies whether the property was built prior to 1978. If so, there's a separate exhibit that covers what you, the seller, know about lead-based paint in the property. If you've had any lead testing done and have any reports, you have to disclose that. The buyer has the right to a separate lead test or can waive that right. 10 is brokerage relationship in transaction. This spells out the agents on both sides of the transaction and how they're representing the buyer and seller. I'll try to explain this simply. Each agent can represent their party as a client or a customer. It's also possible for one agent to represent both sides. We call this dual agency. It's also possible for both agents to be within the same brokerage. We call this designated agency. Any material relationship either broker has with either party is also disclosed here. For example, if you're selling your mom's house, you have to say that. 11 is time limit of offer. This specifies how long you have to respond to the offer. It specifies the date and time the offer expires. If you don't respond by then, the offer is no longer valid. Most sellers respond with a counteroffer to keep the deal in play, and then the buyer may come back with their own counteroffer. As long as each side responds within the specified time limit, the deal is still in play. This is typically one to two days. 12 is consent to share non-public information. It's your agreement to let the closing attorneys distribute a combined settlement statement to all parties that need it to complete the transaction. And finally, 13 is special stipulations. This is anything and everything the buyer may want from the seller above and beyond what's already been explicitly stated. For example, they may want the home professionally cleaned prior to closing and request a receipt to prove that that's been done no later than three days before closing. These are the key items in an offer. Make sure your agent walks you through this before you go live so you're familiar with it. There will be additional exhibits and some specific to condominiums. The most common you'll see is a financing contingency which stipulates the terms of the loan the buyer is getting. The most important components of it are one, 
finance contingency period, and two, appraisal contingency period. These are typically about 21 days each. The shorter, the better. An all-cash offer is even better because there's no risk of a buyer loan not getting approved. After the break, I'll describe multiple offers. I'm back to talk about multiple offers. A multiple offer can be both wonderful and overwhelming. On the one hand, it's great that more than one buyer wants to buy your home. On the other hand, you have to review these multiple offers in a short time frame and decide which one to accept. Multiple offers are great, but really only when they arrive at the same time. Otherwise, as I described in the let's make a deal scenario, you're forced to make a decision on each independently. For example, if you get one offer each week, you pretty much have to make a decision on each within one to two days and can't compare them all at the same time. Statistically, everyone will tell you that the first offer is usually the best offer, so keep that in mind. If you don't negotiate through it and go binding, it's likely any other offers aren't going to be as good. Multiple offers at the same time is what you want because then you can compare them, make a decision, and respond to all of them at the same time. Again, as I mentioned above, since you already know what a good offer means to you, it should be relatively easy for your agent to line them up to compare, give you their opinion, and let you decide which to accept. If you get so many multiple offers that you're overwhelmed with the response and anticipate even more coming in, you can simplify the process by calling for highest and best. This is your way of putting a deadline on the inflow of offers and telling agents to submit their clients' best and highest offer by a predetermined date and time, let's say Monday at 5 p.m. All those agents will then submit their offers by then, and you and your agent can review them all at once. You can pick the best one to either negotiate with or accept. In the meantime, you can determine which other offers you'd like to consider as a backup. It's a bit easier to negotiate the primary one and accept that first, and then start negotiating the backup offers, since that's a separate negotiation in and of itself. And signing that one requires having a primary offer in place. Note that not every offer you review will agree to be a backup, so have your agent confirm which of the other offers are open to this. I need to say a word here about escalation clauses. An escalation clause in an offer allows the offer to automatically increase the offer price by a specific increment up to a certain limit. It is triggered only by another offer that is higher. For example, you get an offer for $500,000 with an escalation clause allowing it to increase by $1,000 up to a maximum limit of $510,000. That's basically an offer of $500,000 until a higher offer comes in. If another offer comes in for $505,000, the first offer goes up automatically by $1,000 until it exceeds the second offer. So now the first offer moves up to $506,000. It went up $1,000 six times until it was higher than offer two at 505. Offer one stops escalating and is now the higher offer at 506. If a third offer then comes in at 509, the process repeats itself. Offer one goes up by $1,000 until it's greater than the 509 offer and stops at 510. This is where it ends because it's now higher than offer three. If a fourth offer comes in that's even higher, Offer 1 can no longer escalate because it hit its limit of $510,000. It's really fun to watch these in action. If you get escalation clauses in multiple offers, they essentially play off each other until one of them hits its limit. 
Note that if it's written correctly, it's the net offer price, not the gross offer price, that triggers an escalation clause. If the escalation clauses aren't all written this way, it's a bit tricky to compare them because some are triggered by the gross price and others are triggered by the net price. After the break, I'll talk about backup offers. Welcome back. So you've got your offer and are binding. Do you feel safe and content that you'll make it to the closing table? Maybe, but maybe not. Here's something you can do to protect yourself. A backup offer is a safety net and decreases your risk. It's a backup in case your primary offer falls apart. It's essentially a second purchase and sale agreement, which is a binding contract contingent on the primary offer terminating and it becomes effective as soon as the primary contract terminates. It actually refers to the primary contract with the date and name of the buyers. It has a specific time frame attached to it, after which it expires. For example, it can run for a week through the due diligence period of the primary offer, or right up until closing. This means that if the primary offer falls apart the day before closing, the backup offer becomes binding, and that second set of buyers become your new buyers. Of course, the backup offer can choose to terminate if they find another home. But there's no cost to doing this, and there's no real risk, except for them withdrawing the backup offer. The answer I get on this are mixed, but some brokers claim that it's possible to have multiple backup offers that piggyback on one another. This is a complicated set of dominoes I won't get into here. Let's keep it simple and assume one backup offer is all you need. Also note that a backup offer provides you some leverage. If your buyers come back during due diligence asking for the world, you can easily say, no way, forcing them to terminate because you have a backup offer waiting. Your agent isn't obligated to tell anyone that you have a backup offer. I also had this happen to one set of clients. Their buyers offered $20,000 over asking price and during due diligence wanted the sellers to do a lot of work to the house. My seller said no, the buyers terminated, and the backup offer kicked in. A lot of agents and sellers ignore backup offers, as if they're too complicated or not worth the time. They aren't complicated, and they're definitely a good idea. Think about it this way. If you accept an offer and have no backup, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. As I described above, there are many things that can cause the deal to fall apart. If that happens, do you really want to go back to holding open houses three weeks down the road, trying to generate renewed interest in your home so you get another offer? By that time, your home is considered stale, and since potential buyers will not know why it's back on the market, there's a bit of a stigma attached to it. Perhaps your buyer's loan wasn't approved, but not everyone knows this, so some buyers might think the inspection revealed issues. Your agent should be open and honest about why the deal fell apart and do everything they can to generate new offers. But hey, you can avoid all of this by accepting a backup offer right up front. I have done this several times, and it saved us twice. Both times the primary offer terminated during due diligence, but my sellers had nothing to worry about because we had a backup offer waiting. When we return, I'll discuss why your accepted offer may fall apart. Yes, even though you have a binding contract, it might fall apart and put you back to square one. This isn't a fun situation to be in, but it does happen, so be prepared. There are many things that are completely outside of your control or the control of your agent. The three most common points of termination are due diligence items, a buyer's loan being denied, and the home not appraising. 
During due diligence, the buyer will have one or more inspections done and ask you to make repairs or compensate them for these through a lowered price or a contribution to their closing costs. Sometimes these are completely unreasonable and you'll have to decide what you're willing to accept. Remember, if you don't have another offer waiting, you could be losing the only buyer you'll ever get. The financing contingency is, for the most part, completely outside your control. It gives the buyer the right to terminate and get their earnest money back if their loan is denied. When fielding offers, make sure your agent gets pre-approval or pre-qualification letters. This means that the buyer has had some type of approval from a lender, although this never guarantees that their loan will be approved. As I've noted in another episode, a pre-qualification letter means very little because it's based on no verified documentation. A pre-approval letter is stronger and a fully approved buyer is the best. Note the difference in these three when fielding offers. Your agent has the right to call a buyer's lender and speak to them, so ask that they do this when fielding offers. Appraisals are a third area where things can go south. Your buyer's lender will have the home appraised. A low appraisal is very hard to challenge, and by this stage in the process, it's unlikely to happen without messing up your closing day. If your home doesn't appraise, four things can happen. One, you pay the difference. Two, the buyer pays the difference. If your buyer is cash poor, they won't have the money to do this. Three, you negotiate to split the difference. Or four, your negotiation fails and the buyer terminates. This happened to me once when selling my first home. It appraised for $12,000 less than the contract price, and the buyers didn't have the funds to pay this. We were already under contract to close on our new home and had no choice at this point but to reduce the contract price by $12,000. It's just one of those things you can't control for and don't have a lot of leverage over in the end. We weren't about to lose our new home over $12,000. So your best approach is to plan for the worst. How is this relevant when fielding offers? Your agent should know whether an offer is so high that it's unlikely to appraise. It does no one any good if the offer is $20,000 above your asking price if it's not going to appraise for that amount. You'll be very upset 21 days later if it doesn't appraise, and you end up having to reduce the price by the same $20,000 that made this offer too good to be true in the first place. So don't be fooled into thinking the highest offer is the best one. In reality, the highest price that will realistically appraise is a better way to assess an offer price. After the break, I'll be back with a recap of today's episode. Here's a summary of today's topic, fielding offers on your home. Getting offers is probably both the most exciting part of the selling process, but can be the most complicated and stressful. So talk through all the possible scenarios with your agent before you go live, so you've had time to think them through and know how you plan to respond. These include backup offers, multiple offers, asking for best and highest, and what to do if you get no offers. Review the purchase and sale agreement so you know what an offer will consist of. Know what's important to you in advance so you have criteria with which to measure how good an offer is. Good means different things to different people. Be aware of how escalation clauses work and understand the three main contingencies in most offers and what could cause your buyers to terminate during due diligence, the financing contingency, and the appraisal contingency. Finally, be nice. Don't be an unreasonable jerk when it comes to negotiating. Your objective is to sell your house and be fair to the buyers. No one likes to feel like they're getting screwed over. The more antagonistic you are when fielding offers, the more ill will you'll create, leading to the potential for more nastiness in return down the road from your buyers when it's time to negotiate other items. One false move can trail a great offer. 
My closing thought? This is going to sound weird, but your agent is not actually negotiating with the other agent. They're negotiating with you and then simply communicating that agreement to the buyer's agent. Since your agent is not making any decisions for you, all they're doing is repeating what you want to the other agent, which means, as odd as it sounds, they're not negotiating with the other agent. The negotiation is with you. The same is true on the other side. The buyer is negotiating with their agent, who in turn is simply communicating their wishes to your agent. Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy I hope you learned something valuable today and found this informative. I always tell sellers that the more they understand up front, the better prepared they'll be for what happens. Your objective is to weigh your options and get the best possible deal for yourself without alienating potential buyers and scaring them away with a power grab. This is where the art of negotiation is paramount and having a great agent representing you is key. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Tune in again for another episode of State of Reality, where I shed light on real estate and the reality behind it.